You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Shireen Hamza. Today's episode is part of our series on the history of science, Ottoman or otherwise, curated by Nir Shafir. For a complete listing of that series, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We've got a lot of uh, episodes on a range of topics relating to the history of science and knowledge in the Ottoman and Islamic world. Uh, today's episode fits into our subheading of the um, cultures of the book, where we're talking about literacy. And in fact, the subject is what we're going to call nouveau literacy in the 18th century Ottoman Levant. Our guest is Dana Sajdi. She's associate professor in the Department of History at Boston College, and she's the author of a work entitled The Barber of Damascus. Again, that subheading is Nouveau Literacy in the 18th Century Ottoman Levant, and that's out from Stanford University Press in 2013. Professor Sajdi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's very exciting to have you on the podcast to discuss this really unique uh, work within uh, the study of the history of the early modern Middle East. I think I think it's a great example of one of the different ways we can approach uh, the subject of, of literature and of reading and of knowledge uh, during the Ottoman period. Um, and I wanted to start off by asking you, you know, I, I could, I really related to your introduction <laughs> because uh, you talk about um, that you finally found your Minocchio is what you said. So Minocchio is uh, the figure from Carlo Ginzburg's uh, very iconic uh, work of micro history, the cheese and the worms, sort of uh, a miller who constructed this whole cosmos for himself. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about that. But I mean that that statement was so relatable to me because I'm not a I'm not a historian of literature or anything mm-hmm. like that. I work on environmental history, but once in a while you find these sources that you're just like, I found my Minocchio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that you can't ignore when mm-hmm. you find something that just opens up another world yes. um, onto the history that you've already been studying for so long. So tell us about your Minocchio, uh, Ibn Budair, and how he uh, inspired you to sort of uh, write this work. So as a background, I had been trained as a medievalist, and I had read the chronicles of the Ayyubid and Mamluk period. And uh, I was at the same time being exposed to historiography, especially from, um, from historians of Europe. And of course, you know, Carlo Ginsburg's book was one of the first things we read. And then it was, you know, Natalie Zeman Davis and then Darnton Mm -hmm. and then all of these early modernists as examples of like the new history at the time. And of course, there were subaltern studies. So while I was learning about all of this and looking into my medieval chronicles and looking for the voices of the marginal, I was really dejected because I spent a whole year reading all of them and there will be incidental mentions of the people, but you did not kind of, we were not able to do anything but a descriptive history. And so while being dejected and being upset that we don't have the right sources, because all the sources that we were reading were by the scholars, the ulama, I was reading Tarif Khalidi's book on Arabic historiography and found in some footnote that, you know, about 18th century barber and farmer historians. That's Ibn Budai, the barber of Damascus. Anyway, so I went and looked for these uh, people that uh, Khalidi mentions, and they were all um, unusual people. They're not scholars. And amongst them was a barber. So when I went and looked for this barber, indeed, there is a chronicle by the barber that is that was published and edit, edited and published in the in the 50s by Ahmed Azat Abdul Karim. 
But the catch is the following, that the, the Chronicle had been Baudelarized mm. by a 19th century scholar and who had, in his own words, refined it and edited it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we knew this is a story of a barber, but this, is not what, this was not his voice. Anyway, so I wrote my dissertation on 18th century chronicles. But then as I was finishing the dissertation, I came across, by complete coincidence, the chronicle of the barber, the unique copy that was housed in Chester PT Library. And mm-hmm. when I looked at it, I realized that I found my Minocchio because it was so different and so fresh and so significantly different from the 19th century version that I thought, this is my protagonist, this is my Minocchio. And the fact that there's a 19th century version brings things so much clearer into relief so in such a strong way that I just decided to make my book about the barber. And so we're going to get into the, you know, the, the cosmos and the understanding of history that, that's in uh, the work of Ibn Budayr, the, the barber of Damascus, as you call him, mm-hmm. and sort of how it uh, challenges a, maybe a more monolithic or hegemonic uh, understanding of um, history writing during um, the 18th century that, that we've sort of received from previous scholarship and that you encountered in some of your earlier work. Um, but before doing so, like let's set the stage. Mm-hmm. We can do it through his eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on in the in the 18th century Levant, sort of during the long 18th century in Syria, in in the city of Damascus in particular, sort of the the, the social changes that are going on in the city. A lot was going on, and I only realized this after really reading the Barber and becoming very close to his context. So I'm a you know veteran of Damascus. I've I've gone there since I was a child. It's the first stitches that I had on my head were in Damascus. But so what we knew as as growing up, what I knew as the old city of Damascus, you know, it's kind of very well known for its houses. You know, arranged Mm -hmm. around the courtyard, these beautiful you know little treasure boxes that they were called. And so I thought this is old Damascus. Then I realized that all I know as old, or most of what I know as old Damascus is actually an 18th century aspect Mm -hmm. of the city. So the topography of the city had changed. And the 18th century had all these new mansions, Mm -hmm. which now dominate a part of the the walled city. Going back from there is like, what are these mansions? Where did the money come from? Who are these people who built these mansions? Going backwards it becomes a very easy kind of connection because we know from uh, from uh, the work of Hurani from 35 years ago yeah. that there's this uh, period of the rise of the notables. Yeah. And it is what classically Ottomanists have called as decentralization mm-hmm. or what Ariel Saltzman called as privatization, which is that in the 18th century, Istanbul decided to devolve fiscal and political rights from the center to the provinces mm-hmm. And what happened is that there was an influx of new money and the rise of these new families who ruled and administered and actually kind of uh, and, and collected the resources of the area. So there's new money and a new way of doing things. But also it was a time of reinvigorated Mediterranean trade mm-hmm. and integration to the world economy, if you will. And that gave rise to port cities like Acre and later Beirut. Mm-hmm. So there's a... There's a reorientation of Damascus as a provincial capital towards the sea and also kind of a local way of collecting revenues that had not been before. So there's a new money and mm-hmm. new money means people move to the town, you know, yeah. to the city. And so it's like the Rockefellers moved to town. Right. And so what, what so I call this a new order. It's really a disorder because it is kind of a, a reshuffling of the social map. 
Mm-hmm. And this is where I intervened with the classical scholarship about the, about the rise of the ayan. The ayan don't just rise and nothing else happens. Okay. So there's both vertical and horizontal movement. There is a lot of social positions changing. And this is reflected not only in the new money and also the topography. And I see the changes or the entry of these of new authors on the text of history as related to the social changes and the mm-hmm. topographical changes. So in these three spaces, there's a relationship and a disorder, a social, topographical, and literary disorder. Right. And so thinking back from like maybe the 19th or early 20th century, what you're essentially describing is the rise of these Damascus households that sort of build themselves into the urban landscape and become economic and political fixtures, families that are associated with, uh, you know, mm. uh, the the aristocracy of old Damascus that are, remain very politically influential into yes. the 20th century, Absolutely. even under the French as sort of centers of like mm-hmm. uh, political mm. resistance against yeah, yeah. Uh, French intervention. So this 18th century period is that you're describing is, is a sort of the ascendance of a lot of these families Absolutely. that... Um, Mm-hmm. People who have visited Syria will uh, recognize. Uh, the, you know, the National Museum, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. is, is housed in the famous uh, Lazm mansion. Yeah. yeah. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Shireen Hamza here talking to Dana Sajdi about her book, The Barber of Damascus. We're speaking about nouveau literacy in the 18th century Ottoman Levant. Uh, you know, sometimes people ask me uh, about the podcast, you know, how, where do you get your money? How is it supported? And um, the truth is uh, we don't have any sources of funding and have no intention to really have them. It's totally self-sustained. That's how we stay efficient. That's how we stay independent. Uh, and that's how we uh, ensure that we are all uh, mutually interdependent on each other's efforts. Uh, but for the listeners who do want to support us, there is a way you can do that. You can go to iTunes or wherever uh, you are accessing the podcast and do rate us uh, with however many stars you believe we deserve. Five is the preferred amount. Uh, and even write a review so we can not only uh, let the iTunes community know about uh, uh, what we're doing here on the podcast, but also get your feedback. You mentioned that the rise of these elite families in 18th century is something similar to the Rockefellers coming to town. Mm -hmm. The influx of that new money into the city caused a lot of reshuffling in the landscape. Mm -hmm. Was Ibn Budeir and his migration of sorts into the walled city part of a larger movement of people? It is not very clear to me from my sources that that happened on a large scale or not. But we know that these families, when they move into town, they are gonna, they're going to uh, develop these networks that go from high to low, from mm. inside to outside. Mm-hmm. So um, it is very clear that, for example, one of the other characters in the book who is uh, a scribe in a court in the town of Hems, that his whole life was dependent on uh, a person, a military person, actually, who was aspiring to become the, the district governor. So you could see how he was totally attached to this new guy and his uh, fortunes rose and fell 
with him. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say here is that the change, you know, with the with the new uh, elite, there's also new networks. And while I cannot place Ibn Budir himself on a very specific network for with these families, I can place some of the other characters in that. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a reshuffle. And Ibn Budir's move from, you know, kind of having lived in a in a neighborhood that is outside the city walls to the inside of the city was kind of a very fortuitous one because he ended up apprenticing at a, a very high class uh, barbershop in the center of, um, of, the, of the walled city. So Dana, we've been talking about Ibn Budair, this barber of Damascus. We know he's a barber, but tell us about his social world. He comes, he comes as you said, he moves in uh, from outside of the city walls, comes to Damascus and becomes situated in this uh, urban landscape within which he eventually uh, becomes a writer. So um, what, what's his life like? What's, what's going on at the barbershop? And yeah. uh, how is it part of the, the larger transformation of Damascus? So the barber was from a family of porters, you know, and their grand, grandparents and cousins, everybody worked in grandfathers. So everybody worked as a porter on the pilgrimage route to Mecca. And uh, I don't know what happened that he didn't inherit his family business and that he ended up apprenticing at a barber shop in Babel Barid. Babel Barid is a very important neighborhood in the intramural city because it's right next to the Umayyad Mosque. It's right next to kind of the, the elite colleges of Damascus. And so he moved to a place that is full of high culture, if you will. And he apprenticed with this barber who, master barber, who seems to have had as clients all these very famous scholars and mystics, Sufis mm. of Damascus, mm -hmm. who would come to his barber shop. Obviously, that's where they worked and he was mm -hmm. around. And so uh, Ibn Budair was fortunate enough to apprentice with this man whom he called my father and whom he called, mm. you know, the person who allowed things to open up for me in so many words. And so it seems that Ibn Budair got uh, in touch and kind of socialized with all these big scholars in yeah. the barber shop. And we also know that Ibn Budair got an education. It was not mm -hmm. a full-time education, but he's read books in, in, in jurisprudence, in mysticism. Um, and uh, we don't know if he attended classes, if he went to mm -hmm. the colleges, or he got these in the barber shop. Uh, but we know that he was quite well educated. He talks about the books that he read, yeah. and he talks about the books that his children read. Mm -hmm. So he was, very, he was very invested in his children's education. So he ends up moving from out of town to inside the city and having a family and then um, having his own barbershop also in that very important culturally rich center mm -hmm. and having the same kind of clientele as his yeah. master barber. And so what is happening at the barbershop is very interesting because Budair does not actually talk about his barbershop in his chronicle, in his work. What he talks about are the kinds of clients that he has because they're so important and so in the style of the scholars, he wrote obituaries once they died. Mm. And so in these obituaries, he will never miss a chance to say that they were his clients or that he touched them, especially if mm -hmm. they're mystics. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was his way of, of kind of being a part of that social world and entering it and talking about it. So Ibn Budair is this person, he's, he's a barber whose position, he's sort of taking care of the beards of the, the most respected bearded men yes. of uh, Damascus. And mm -hmm. so he has his intimate contact with uh, a scholarly world and then uh, becomes a scholar of his own. Well, almost a scholar, 
because he never really um, he never he never pretends to be a scholar he is a practicing barber and he's proud of it but the scholarly thing that he does is that actually he writes a book a book in the scholarly style so it's not that he wants to be a scholar he just has the confidence mm. to actually author a book if you go today to any barber in the area around Harvard and MIT where we're sitting, I don't think you'll, you'll, you'll manage to encounter many barbers who, because they have clients who are professors, will actually write a book. Oh. So what was interesting about that moment... You might have even a couple of people with PhDs, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a separate issue. We'll get yes. into that. <laughs> so what is Im- important about this phenomenon, the barber himself, and this phenomenon is that these people who have no business writing books in that particular genre actually have the confidence mm-hmm. to write these books. And so the, the the genre that he used is historically a scholarly genre, although it was not taught in the colleges, mm-hmm. but its mm-hmm. scholars had historically written chronicles. And here to define a chronicle, it is a record of events and kind of structured chronologically. But what is important here at this period is, you know, since the late medieval period, that these books have become more and more to do with contemporary history and less with past events. So they are usually written about the events that taking a place in the author's lifetime. Mm -hmm. So they're really very contemporary. And so being called history is a little bit of a misnomer. It's just recording things for history, for posterity kind of thing. So he chose to write and and other people of similar backgrounds chose to write in this genre and that's kind of an encroachment on what had been kind of a hegemonic space that was um, within the hegemony of the scholar. This phenomenon that you're describing in your book you refer to as nouveau literacy. Can you tell us more about this phenomenon? What was new about it? Okay, so the term nouveau literacy um, is obviously related to the term nouveau riche, and um, nouveau riche, as you know, is a uh, is a, a descriptive used by aristocracy to kind of distinguish themselves from newly arrived, new you know, new moneyed people, and how their behaviors mm-hmm. and their habitus and their social kind of interaction is actually a, a not in conformity of with the kind of comportment of old money. So I'm using this, but removing as an analytical framework, but removing the derogatory aspects of it. Mm. And so these uh, Ibn Buder and I found five, six other people who have done the same thing, whose background is not in scholarly culture and who end up contributing to scholarly culture by writing history books. So I see them as new, you know, as arrivis, new arrivals on the text of history. And as new arrivals, they bring with them their old baggage and their old, you know, kind of social and literary habits. And so they bring it into the new text and thus effect a lot of change in the content and the form. And so the chronicle is no longer the kind of old scholarly chronicle. Now it's a novel kind of product. And when they come in, they bring their own stuff and so whether it's their language their grammatical constructions or their um, kind of interests so what people might consider as gaffes and faux pas so they do to the chronicle what historically had not been done to it and they lice you know they allow content and language that had never been used before and so that's what nouveau about it the authors are new the content is almost you know is, is almost new and the product is new and I guess one of the things you're referring to is orality, right? So history, 
outside of the the learning class, the ulama class, mm-hmm. would be mainly discussed orally and transmitted orally. And so um, the ordinary person, when coming to the the literary world, is going to bring some of this, uh, which to them is a very intuitive orality of relating uh, historical events um, Okay. but in written form. So this is a great question because it's not orality as such because ulama, you know, whatever, publication of a book in the pre-modern period was oral yeah. and and education was oral. And so, um, you know, to get a PhD, you had to sit with your... Uh, Uh, with your mentor and live with them basically mm-hmm. the whole time and it's through this companionship that you actually kind of got authority transmitted to you uh-huh. but it's a specific kind of orality that these nouveau literates bring to yeah. the text okay. so and this orality really at least in the barber's text it's very very clear that it's coming from what are the epics that were told by storytellers yeah. and these kind the hakawatis. of hakawatis exactly and so it is you know things like um uh whatever you know the the epic of antara the epic of um um of zahir um, bebers so there were all these uh, epics that were being told either in coffee houses yeah on the streets and possibly in barber shops and I'll get back to that connection and so the kind of uh, stories are um, it's like theater being um, narrated and so usually they report first person speeches they do it in rhyme but it's still kind of the prose is the larger framework so we see in the barber's text so much of this storytelling techniques and styles that had not been accustomed in the scholarly chronicle well donna could we trouble you uh, to read a couple of examples of this text so uh, for the listeners who who do know arabic or just want to get a sense of what it sounds like <laughs> For them to understand what you're referring to? Yes, here is a an episode when the kind of strongman rebel uh, from Acre of Zahir Umar uh, is having an encounter. And he, you know, Zahir Umar was uh, a semi-autonomous ruler in Palestine and the uh, sultan was not very happy with him because he was not conforming to kind of the revenue collection mm. and uh, forwarding as others had done in the period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, the the uh, governor of Damascus was um, assigned to to kind of put an end to Al-Zahir Umar. So this is an encounter between Al-Zahir Umar and the governor of Damascus, who is uh, Suleyman Pasha Al-Azm. And um, Ibn Budair is reporting about their last encounter. And... The uh, the report starts. فأرسل الظاهر عمر يقول من المقال ارحم النساء والأطفال وهتك العرم والحرم والعيال وإلا استعنت عليك بالملك المتعال فلما وصله الكتاب زاد سليمان باشا الاكتياب وحل به المصاب فصاح آه ما عدت أنفع فدعوني إلى دمشق الشام أرجع وإذا مت وزاد نكدي ادفنوني عند ولدي ثم إنه مات So it's got the rhyme of sort of a, a fable, as you're saying. Yes, it has this uh, very uh, stoccat kind of. It, it gives a dramatic pitch to the to the to the chronicle in a way that you know theater does, and so um, and it is um, yeah, and it gives this sense of urgency and a sense of, of you know and the first person conversation. It really adds a lot to the text that you don't usually find in ulama texts. Mm. 
I mean, and one of the one of the things we get in this great theatrical reading you've just done, which isn't even apparent, you know, when you read the book, we have these examples transliterated in uh, in Latin script, but you you don't actually get the sense of the rhythm when reading it. I when I read the book, I did not ha- know that it was going to sound like that, even though of course mm-hmm. I can read the the rhyming mm-hmm. Arabic on the page. It doesn't have that. Why don't you? Uh, uh, give us one more, one more, if you don't mind reading one. <laughs> no, not at all. It's one of my favorite things. Okay. So, um, so this episode uh, is a humorous episode, and uh, actually, actually, it's tragic comic. It's not humorous, mm-hmm. and this is also one of the aspects of this text is that it allows, in terms of content, what uh, ulama usually don't write about, and this is. Um, um, an episode that I called The Minaret Suicide. Mm-hmm. And it is about um, the story of someone whose brother-in-law was bringing women to the house and doing not good things with them. And so he was offended that he had turned his house to a place of ill repute. And so he decided to go and speak to the notables of the town or maybe to the governor and tell them about the kind of his brother-in-law's bad behavior. And what happened is that uh, the the notables didn't really they ignored him they didn't listen to him and so they did not set the moral order order right. Mm-hmm. As a result, the man apparently went to the Dakar mosque and um, prayed upon himself the dawn prayer and got himself up um, climbed up the minaret and screamed out, uh, "Oh Ummah of Islam, uh, I'd rather die and not having to deal with the state of this time." Mm. And he throws himself from the minute and dies. And so the way that uh, Ibn Budey reports this uh, is also with some rhyme in it. So here we start at um, the person who ends up committing suicide uh, talking to his brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> فذهب إلى أكابر الحارة وأخبرهم بذلك الشان فمع يبوه وشغلوه بالكلام لأنهم غاتسين جمعا إلى فوق الآذان and then it goes on to say that he went to commit suicide then just before he committed suicide he screamed يا أمة الإسلام الموت أهون ولا التعريس مع دولة هذه الأيام in other words, he's talking about it as, you know, he, he actually mentions the word pimping, that yeah. I'd rather die and not have to deal with the pimping of the state of this time. Hmm. And one of the other things in that, in that uh, uh, little excerpt you just read again beautifully for us is uh, the conspicuous presence of the word ish, ish. the word for what mm-hmm. um, actually... I mean, maybe we can even get into the historical transformation of spoken Arabic in Damascus, because today maybe people would say shu instead. But Aish, is, of course, is colloquial. Uh, it's not the formal Arabic. And uh, you say this is deliberate use of colloquialism here. Okay, so I don't know if it's deliber- deliberate as such, but I think the uh, infiltration of colloquial in this text is um, that Budair, Ibn Budair wrote as he knew how to write and probably mm-hmm. as he spoke. But the deliberate part was to try to make it like high Arabic. Yeah. So I think it's the other way around. So he was trying as much as possible to make it sound like literary Arabic. And so he would add rhyme. He would sometimes overcorrect, um, you know, hyper, you know, hyper mm-hmm. change things from colloquial to, to high Arabic. And so uh, kind of overcorrect in the spelling. And so what we have here is that he moves between the colloquial register and the literary register back and forth 
in the service of rhyme and in the surface of the intent, like, you know, is this an urgent event? And so when it's urgent, he adds rhyme to it. And so whatever comes to mind, he will just put it together Mm -hmm. in order to uh, make the point, which is the drama of it all. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Shireen Hamza here with uh, Professor Dana Sajdi talking about her book, The Barber of Damascus, out from Stanford University Press. Uh, to find out about that book and also to find out about other relevant reading for this podcast, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we've got all the necessary links and a great bibliography uh, supplied by none other than uh, Professor Sajdi. So far, we've been talking a lot about Ibn Budair, the mm-hmm. eponymous barber of Damascus. What about some of these other nouveau literates that you've mentioned uh, so far? Okay, so in addition to Ibn Budair, I have um, found, or actually they are published, but I kind of strung them together as a, as a part of a phenomenon, mm. uh, six other people. Uh, one, two soldiers from Damascus, one Greek Orthodox priest from Damascus, one Samaritan scribe from Nablus um, in Palestine, um, a couple of agriculturalists from father and son from Lebanon called the Rukainis, and finally a scribe from the city of Hems. And so they all also wrote contemporary chronicles around the same time period, and they are from such varied backgrounds. And uh, they all kind of converged on the same genre Mm -hmm. that I couldn't help but think of them as together making a phenomenon. And uh, what is interesting about all of them is that each one of them is also entering a new social position or a new social world. Mm -hmm. And hence the phenomenon of nouveau literacy is that you know, they're moving from one social position to another and they're encountering a new world and hence using the chronicle to negotiate in that new space. Can we hear a little bit more about the text that they wrote? The old wrote contemporary chronicles, but depending on each, uh, on, on the background of the author, the text was inflected by their own positioning. So, for example, we have a Samaritan scribe from Nablus. I mean, I don't know if people know that the Samaritan community is very small, but still survives. They were a group of pre-Rabbinic Jews who had, who, who, for whom the holy place is not Jerusalem, it's Nablus. And they've been living there ever since time immemorial, basically. And um, they actually had had a history of chronicle writing in the medieval period, but then it was cut, you know, kind of completely, mm. um, it completely stopped, or at least nothing survived after the medieval period and then you have this one scribe who writes a chronicle about the city of Nablus itself so usually historically they would write about the community the Samaritan community but this time it was about the city and similarly I have to digress here the Greek Orthodox priest also writes about the city of Damascus as opposed to the particular Christian community Mm -hmm. or about the ecclesiastical you know kind of history so what is interesting about these two um men who come from minority communities is that they're actually writing about the city's 
as a uh, and them, themselves as parts of the city as an integral part of the city right and Nablus is an old city as you said but as we know from the work of Bashar al-Dumani this is precisely a period within which Nablus is kind of transforming as a, a small provincial center but that's exactly the part of the same phenomenon yeah. so it is with the rise of the Tuqan family as a part of this new kind of order yeah. that this scribe because he knows how to read and write is hired mm-hmm. and so his entire kind of positioning is based on the rise of the Tuqan family and hence his voice as and he speaks not only for the city but also for his community um, you know he managed to buy land and to you know to, to allow Passover you know kind of a particular feast for the Passover to happen um, because of his dependence on the Tuqan so again this is a new movement here so, and you'll find it in each of the examples that there is such a movement that is happening either communally or individually We encourage our readers to check out Professor Sajdi's book to find out more about these fascinating 18th century authors. But moving into the discussion of the afterlife of Ibn Budayr's text, what did the 19th century editor Al-Qasimi mean when he said he refined the work of Ibn Budayr, who is clearly a very literate person? Basically, for a scholar of the late late 19th century, of course, who is a part of now a new social and literary movement of, you know, the Arab Enlightenment, Al-Nahda, for him, uh, the kind of uh, low Arabic and uh, uh, the so-called grammatical mistakes and bad usages, uh, what he considered bad usages, for him, these are not textual. Mm. You know, Arabic had been redefined and standardized in the 19, late 19th century. And so it was kind of, it, it, it just was jarring for this alim to see that such language entered a text. Right. So for him, some, some things about what Ibn Budayr had to say were interesting or important enough, but the form, he didn't like the form of it. Mm. And so what he did was just basically uh, change his language from colloquial to standard Arabic, translate some of the words that are in Turkish, in Ottoman Turkish, or actually a couple in Persian into Arabic, and finally remove almost all rhyme in the text. And so what he did is just he flattened it completely. And of course, because much of the chronicle is about the quote unquote suffering of the of, of of the little man and and Ibn Dari speaks as a little man um, against the big people, the Akabir, the notables. There's so much in it about the kind of the oppression of the notables or the negligence of the notables. There's so much of the chronicle about the prices and the uh, you know perpetually rising prices of produce. So what the uh, alim does is that he removes all these repetitive things, whatever he thinks is boring and repeated, and omits some of the actual events that he thinks are not suitable. Ah. So what he does is he cuts the barber's tail, Mm. and he actually omits all personal references of the barber to himself. So the barber, whenever he wrote an obituary of a, of a, of a scholar or a mystic, he made sure to mention how he had right. personal contract, contact with these people. And so that's how we know who he was friends with and who he socialized with. But Al-Qasimi removed all self-references hmm. out of the text. So what happens 
in all of this is that Al-Qasimi's vision, a kind of view of this book, why he thought it was important, was not that it was the voice of the barber or the presence of the barber. Sure. But this is a book that told you about the Azam rule of Damascus in the 18th century and all these big scholars. So for him, this was heritage. This was history. This yep. is, you know, and so this is for the um, for the new enlightened, you know, 19th century person to look back at their past. And the barber is actually almost an, an annoyance. The fact of the barber mm. authorial authorship is almost an annoyance. And so while he does mention that it was a barber and he mentions himself that his grandfather was a barber, he ends up kind of emitting all self-references, anything unique or particular to the barber he emits out of the chronicle, but he tries to be faithful to the chronology of events. Mm. I mean, this is very fascinating because you're essentially talking about what we might call the self-conscious modernization of literary uh, and and scholarly style in Arabic during the 19th century. He's, re- he's removing the subjectivity mm-hmm. from a historical text, which is very much in line with um, the sort of objectivist representation yes. of of history mm-hmm. during the 19th century mm-hmm. that is in many ways still with us today. I'm yes. sure that a lot of, of your subjectivity is also <laughs> omitted from your text, yeah. but I, not all of it. It's good yeah. that you have some of there in the beginning. So to conclude, I mean, I want to ask you about what happens to Ibn Budayr's texts, uh, the relationship to the 19th century, late 19th century uh, Arabic scholarship, uh, how it relates to the larger question of uh, how we see the Nahda, mm-hmm. sort of the, the big, what, what's remembered as sort of the big mm-hmm. intellectual sea change uh, in Arabic mm-hmm. literature, the rise of, of, of literacy uh, in the Arab world. Um, you know, you have some interesting comments at the end of your, end of your book about how Ibn Budair uh, relates to the way we see the Nahda, the rise of uh, print journalism as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could uh, elaborate yes, upon that. Yes, I'd be very happy to do that. So the way that we periodize uh, Middle Eastern history, we have like an early Islamic period, then somehow a medieval period that not many people know about. And then it is declined and the Ottomans and then it is the Nahda and kind of the the modern period, which is so detached and usually seen as unrelated to the previous periods. And despite the fact that people have been talking about, uh, you know, that this could not be just the encounter with the West, but I still have yet to see modernists who relate what they work on to the 18th century or to earlier to the early modern Mm. period so what happened is when I was doing medieval chronicles and when I got to the 18th century I always looked at chronicles as newspapers to me it was an obvious thing because this is the only written form in which news is transmitted right other Mm -hmm. than like letters or word of mouth so to me the importance of the chronicle was that it kind of recorded daily events and that's how people learned about what is happening in the other town so, but then when I came to the 19th century, century just to, to kind of to compare the barber's original text with the Baudelaire's version, I kind of learned about an Nahda and I learned that the kind of the printing press is the hallmark of an Nahda and the newspaper is the paramount text in an Nahda uh, project and about the prolifer- you know, sudden proliferation of journals and newspapers in abundant numbers. I mean, the, the numbers are huge. Like you have like, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, 12 newspapers opening a day, something very crazy. Anyway, yeah. so uh, everybody had talked about this as a sudden thing. You know, the printing press came and there was the revolution. 
and um, everybody somehow became journalists. And suddenly the alim, the scholar, is removed from the picture. Yeah. He's no longer at the center stage. And now it's the public, new public intellectual with new education and a new kind of uh, canon mm-hmm. that comes yeah. with him. So I looked at this carefully and I realized, wait a second, it, it doesn't, you know, this kind of pr- print journalism doesn't catch on suddenly just because of that. It cannot happen like that. There are social practices and these social practices, I mean, it, you know, this is too sudden. Right. And so when I looked at, I look at 18th century chronicles as a scribal version, a preprint mm. journalism, mm-hmm. whereby the, you know, kind of the authority of the alim had already been broken uh, he's no longer a center already in the 18th century. And so once print arrived, it's the same social practice and it's mm-hmm. the same kind of people that took up um, the newspaper. So I see the pre-print nouveau literate as kind of the new journalist uh-huh. who's going to pave way for the public intellectual of the 19th century. So this way you see that there's a continuity of practice. Of course, there's many, many changes. I'm not saying that like, yeah. you know, they, you know, there was an encounter with the West, there was an encounter right. with new knowledge, etc. But then there was a lot of continuities. And this is the only way I can explain how uh, newspapers and journals became so Mm-hmm. Uh, preponderant, mm-hmm. yeah. which is a continuity from the past. Well, and this whole practice of reading uh, newspapers allowed in coffee houses, of course, makes a lot more sense within this context where we've sort of traced from the Hakawati to the chronicler to the journalist. Exactly. You know. So it's the same social practices, whether it's the in authority or in consumption. Mm-hmm. So production or consumption, they're very, very similar pre-print, you know, in the preprint period to the postprint period. Well, Donna, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's a really fascinating and unique work. It's kind of the kind of thing that like we hope to see more of I, I, for those who are listening out there and want to find more texts such as this or can dig them up. It's uh, it really does change the way we, we read the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as you've shown here, offer uh, new links to understanding how the early modern becomes the modern sort of simply put. Uh, and so I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, joining us, sharing a little bit of your work and, and reading those uh, theatrical passages <laughs> as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I have to tell you that I'm giving you six stars, not only five okay. for the podcast. Thank you very much for the podcast. We're very grateful for Cheers. that. Uh, we want to also thank our audience for tuning in and remind them that on our website, you can find a link to where you can pick up The Barber of Damascus uh, by Dana Sajdi from Stanford University Press. Uh, in our blog outofmysterypodcast.com that's where you'll also find a bibliography with other relevant reading a great place to leave your comments and questions Um, I also want to invite you to join us on Facebook we've got over 25,000 fans in our Facebook group now so if you want to give your two cents about Donna Sajdi's book and let your voice be heard that's the best place to get a little bit of attention for yourself as some of our listeners like to frequently do Uh, So we'll leave you uh, today with a recording. We've featured this band before on our podcast. Um, The singer is none other than Nurchin Ileri, who was featured in a previous episode about um, uh, nighttime in late autumn in Istanbul. It's a very famous Arabic composition, I I believe, uh, a musical arrangement that dates maybe even to the Ottoman period, Lama Badayatathanna. So we'll leave you with this uh, clip from Nurchin and the band Mohtalif. Uh, and uh, invite you to join in next time. Until then, take care.